This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans. And today's guest is Chad Weeby from Oakstone Outfitters up in the Paso Robles area. And they do all kinds of different hunts up there and they've got a lodge and whatnot. I'm going to read you their bio right now. Oakstone Outfitters is committed to serving its clients the highest quality hunts. With such a wide variety of hunting opportunities and an extensive knowledge of the land, you will experience hunting at its finest. Our amazing 99% success rate will guarantee an opportunity at game on all of our hunts. All the guides and staff are experienced, knowledgeable, and eager to make your time with us enjoyable one. Success on a hunt is always an outfitter's priority, but we also believe that the camaraderie of the hunt and the quality of time spent in the field is just as important. The luxurious and unbeaten hospitality of our four exceptional lodges will give you and your guests a chance to relax and enjoy your downtime. Oakstone Outfitters manages and hunts over 20 private leases in the Paso Robles area of California with access to nearly 60,000 acres as well as 150,000 continuous acres available on our northern ranch in Hollister, California. Our mission is to guide you on an adventure you won't forget while making your vacation one of relaxation and comfort. Man, I can't wait to hear all about this uh, this lodge and the hunting they hunt all, hunt all kinds of animals. So let's see if I can get Chad on the phone. Chad, how you doing? Doing well. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really good. Well, well, first of all, where that, your guys' name, Oakstone Outfitters, is so awesome. I love that name. Is it, is it named after something or? What, well, what? you know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny when we when uh, I, I when I first started, I have. Uh, we run basically three businesses. We run under one. Now we kind of run under one LLC or, or S Corp, I guess is how we have it set up. But when I originally started it, we had, I started Central Coast Taxidermy uh, back in, I guess, 2003, right around there, 2003, 2004. Anyway, when I started that, uh, I was, uh, I was guiding a little bit for some other outfitters. I worked off the coast of Santa Barbara on San Rosa Island when it was uh, still functioning oh. and guided out there for probably eight years or so. But when, uh, when I started running hunts for myself, I just started out doing a few turkeys and a few deer hunts on the west side of Paso Robles, kind of towards the coast where my family had some ranch property and stuff that I had access to. But I, I wanted to, uh, 
I was, you know, trying to search for a name for the for the hunting business. And I thought, you know, maybe Weeby Guide Service or Weeby Outfitters. Uh, yeah. My last name it just just sounds weird. It doesn't doesn't really roll <laughs> off the tongue very well. It's not doesn't have a very ro- romantic sound to it or a very sellable sound. And, and then uh, and then there was already a a business. Uh, they used uh, Central Coast in the hunting name, and so I, I couldn't obviously just branch off and go that route. So uh, one of the ranches that uh, my family had, uh, and they had just leased it for mostly for cattle grazing for, I'd say they probably leased it for 100 years, um, was called the Oakstone. And I always thought when I was a kid uh-huh. I, that they talked about moving cattle out of that area, and so I, they, they always talked about the Oakstone or going to the Oakstone and how they'd refer to it. And I thought, man, that's such a great – it's a great sounding name, and so when I when I when I kind of gave the business that name, my uh, my father was uh, was not real receptive to it. He just <laughs> he's one of those guys. Just he said, "Well, man, they use the word oak in everything, you know, especially over here in Pass Robles and uh-huh. and you were in wine country, so you you see oak used a lot. But uh, but but I think it uh, it it's you know it kind of I like the the story behind it or that it was a family, you know, a, a property that our family had a lot to do with for many years and stuff. So, so it was kind of fun for that reason. But yeah, we, I get that question, um, often, you know, asking, uh, how we, you know, how we came about with that solid name, so. name man. I love it. I love yeah, that. Thank you, you. Know, and your guys' logo is, is uh, badass too, man. I love it. So tell, oh, thank you. tell me about your, your outfitting business and what you guys do and where you're located and all that stuff. Yeah, so we're we're located about 20 minutes north of Pass Robles in a little town called Bradley. Not many people know where Bradley, California is at, which is totally understandable. The town itself, I think, has a population of 120 people. The I would what I would call the city center, or the center of town, is <laughs> uh, is comprised of uh, 20 homes, a post office, a little church, and uh, a school where my kids go to school. And so it's right oh, cool. by Camp Roberts. We're right by Camp Roberts, right off the 101. So a lot of people know where Camp Roberts is. If they're going from uh, from the Bay Area down to Southern California on the 101, yeah. uh, you know, Camp Roberts is a pretty big fixture that you pass on, you know, the road south between, you know, kind of a dead area where there's not many gas stations before you start to run into Pass Robles. Um, so that's where we're located. We do hunts all the way from, uh, I'd say, northern Monterey County, southern San Benito County, all the way down uh, – into the southern part of San Luis Obispo County. We also do hunts in Mexico as well. Um, but with those, I say with our hunts and stuff, we're kind of where we're where our base is here in Bradley. We also run a taxidermy studio out of our facility here. We also run a meat processing uh, facility as well. So the taxidermy we've done that since they like, say since 2003, and then the uh, meat processing we've done that. I get. I think we probably started doing that in 2019. And then in 2020 with COVID, uh, it was a huge benefit for us to have that since the local processors were pretty, uh, I'd say pretty full of, uh, of, yeah, of domestic (laughs) meat cutting. So a lot of the wild game processing would get kind of pushed to the back burner with those processors. They just couldn't handle the volume. Uh, And then, so we, we kind of had to come up with something to help, you know, facilitate our customers to, um, to be able to, you know, so they had a place to, you know, take their meat. A lot of them, when they want to show up to a hunt, you know, they probably, you know, a lot of them don't maybe, you know, have the experience to take care of the game once they get it home themselves. And then they maybe don't want to hassle with trying to find a processor uh, in their area. Or a lot of times if their hunt ends on a Sunday, then they have to 
you know, figure out what to do with their pig, deer, elk, you know, in the time between Sunday and Monday when the, uh, when their local processor may open. So, so the other thing, I mean, since you're on that subject is that you guys offer, uh, which I thought was super cool and super original. It was a butcher school or butcher. Yeah. Class. The, yeah. yeah. The butcher class, it, you know, uh, it kind of came about a, a couple different ways. Our butcher, John Christensen, his family, his father had a butcher shop in Pastels. Uh, both of his brothers, um, have run other butcher shops here in the area too. So his family and family name is in our area is, uh, is very well known in the, in the butcher processing uh, business. But uh, what we notice is a lot of times, you know, people bring in game or a lot of our hunters would express interest in, you know, like I say, wanting to know how to do their own. And if, uh, if you didn't have someone to show you, and even myself, you know, with our family, we always processed our own deer on the kitchen table when we shot them as kids. But even then we'd have, you know, three piles, we'd have, uh, we had burger and then we had steaks and we had stew meat. And so we didn't know what to call any of them. We just kind of, wherever they kind of fit, we, that's what we called them, you know? So with our butcher school, it's fun because I think a lot of people and myself included, you know, can learn from uh, an expert or a master, you know, in that field, at least kind of know what to tell, you know, like this is how you t- get a tri-tip off of an elk or off of a deer. And this is, you get a T-bone, you know, so the same cuts you get off, obviously, domestic, you're going to get the same cuts off of wild as well. It just, uh, with a lot of people, obviously, don't have the knowledge, so you don't know, you know, where are we going to get, you know, our, our, uh, you know, New York's from versus if we're going to get a T-bone instead or something. So, so not only that, you guys have uh, other schools, too. What, what other schools do you guys have or classes? We do. Yeah, we have a long range shooting school. So we partner with Altera Firearms with that. And we have an instructor, Mike Perkins, who is a uh, competitive sniper shooter. He lives in uh, Montana, I'm sorry, in Idaho. And so he'll come down. Um, usually we try to do one every couple months and he'll come down and we set up a long range. And uh, that's also as well. Just, you know, we hunt and we shoot a lot. But, uh, and I've been through other shooting schools, but it seems like those little tips and tricks that you can learn from guys that have done it their whole lives or people that uh, just live and breathe it. Mike is one of those individuals. He gives all the students his personal cell phone number and tells them to call him anytime. And he's always willing to talk shooting. He doesn't want to talk about anything else, you know, but he wants to talk shooting. So one of those people that just immerses himself in what he does and uh, it loves teaching and loves helping people learn. But um, long range shooting, especially, is one of those things where just those little chip tips and tricks on how to read wind and you know maybe how to grip the gun properly and um, you know and figuring out you know how to get the gun to shoot right mm-hmm. uh, makes a world of difference to make. And I'd say even not that you want to go out there. And I think a lot of people with long range shooting, since it is so, I'd say popular now with the amount of uh, well, you know, I like say well-made custom built rifles. Um, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of, I say judgment, I would say on, uh, on, you know, taking shots that are outside of what might be what thought of as ethical range. Uh-huh. So in the thousand yard mark. So we do practice out to a thousand, but like he says in the school, we want people to be proficient where they feel like a 400 yard shot is the equivalent of the, I guess the equivalent of what a hundred yard shot used to feel like. So um, not that we're trying to push people to go out and shoot an elk at 800 yards. 
Um, but that if you have to make a 400-yard shot or a 500-yard shot, that you're comfortable to make an ethical shot at that range. That sounds fun, man, just to go to the school and, like, shoot it. You guys shoot at targets, like, you have targets all probably in the hills and stuff, and you guys move around. Yeah, yeah so right up here on the ranch, yeah, we have yeah. it set up. And so that we kind of sell it as, I say, a long-range hunting school versus a long-range shooting school. So all mm-hmm. the shooting positions are, I would say, like, you know, real real shooting positions. So uh, we might shoot off the bench just to get the gun zeroed, but after we get the gun zeroed at uh, 200, then we move from the bench to shooting prone or to shooting from sticks. Really say those situations you're going to be in when you're on a hunt. Obviously, when you're hunting, you're not going to have a, there's never going to be a bench sitting there, or usually not <laughs> ready for you to shoot from. So, um, so that's a lot of fun and it's laid back. Uh, we have a full time cook on staff and then we do those with meals and lodging on yeah. the property. That sounds um, amazing. Yeah. Sounds so so it's, it's laid fun. back. It's a fun time. Yeah. So do you do a taxidermy? Uh, school or is that because that's a that's pretty much an art you gotta you gotta be like yeah we, we haven't done anything with with the taxidermy school yeah. there are uh we there are some taxidermists that will do like a zoom class or yeah. classes like that we've thought about that um but it's a yeah i don't know we've uh that's an we'll, art man we'll, that's a yeah what we'll probably end up doing is maybe like an ag we get a lot of interest in doing a hunting school yeah. and obviously the guides are always willing to help people learn how to hunt if they don't know or kind of explain to them what what we do and why we do it to help you know find game and yeah. where you want to be when when the game comes out little things like that but yeah the taxidermy is a funny one it's a it's an interesting business for sure out of all the stuff we do yeah um it's a lot of fun but it uh, it has its own set of challenges it's obviously one of those businesses yeah, you can't just go hire somebody and throw them in there and expect work to start flowing <laughs> out so it it takes usually like three years to train to train an individual in the shop. And so with that, it's always a a struggle. So you always hear people, I'd say, I'd use the word complain, but maybe, uh, you know, bellyache a little bit about the timeframes that taxidermists take. And uh, and that can be an issue. But what people have to realize is it usually is one to maybe like we're a shop of three, uh, three full-time individuals in the taxidermy studio. So it's not that, you know, we get a heavy season. You can't just like bring in more help to help get work done. You know, you're kind of, yeah. hampered by that uh by that skill set so you can't really get in there and get you know the time frames always are pushing around a year it seems like for most tax studios so one of the things that really uh interests me is the um well all the different species that you have there but you know i've, I've had some uh, uh fishing game biologists on my podcast and they talk about uh you know the tule elk and, um, you know, what I'd like to hear from, from you is kind of describe, you know, what a Thule elk hunt is like, you know, like get up in the morning and then you guys like, you guys just go right from the lodge or you guys have to like drive somewhere and kind of find out where they're at. Cause they, they cruise all over the place, don't they? Or they kind of stay in one, one area. They do. They move, they, they will move quite a bit and it definitely differs ranch to ranch so in the state of california you know the area that the tule elk kind of encompass they'll get down into into southern uh san luis obispo county but then obviously they'll be up towards um oh towards uh i'd say ukiah in that country up to the north end as well oh really but they uh but uh it's kind of interesting uh you get into certain areas and the elk will be um like you get ranches around like say up in northern Monterey County towards Salinas, there's ranches where they all kind of hang really tight in these 
small areas or all the cows kind of hang in one area. So let's say maybe 200 cow elk in one area. And then the bulls kind of depending on the rut kind of floating around them. And then you get down here into our area outside of Bradley, outside of Pasco, and we're more open rolling country. And then you will get the elk will travel, you know, and you might see them one spot in one day, then you go back there to find them. And then they're five miles the other direction just because they decided to move that, that way to go feed that night. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so typically with our elk hunts, we, we just do most of them out of our lodge here in Paso. And so we leave from here in the morning. Um, most of it, you know, has been pre-scouted just like you say, the ability to hunt the elk. Uh, there's not a lot of, uh, availability for the tags uh even in the state you know it takes uh-huh. typically max points to draw the tag and if people do draw a lapanza tag or a fort hunter liggett tag then we can guide them uh, for those so we'll probably do maybe six to seven of those draw tag hunts a year and then we'll probably do six to seven of the landowner tags per year and so those landowner tags those are tags that the property owner works with the state of california to put in for what they call the PLM, the private land management program. And so the state biologist counts the elk that's on the property and takes into consideration uh, maybe other ranches in that area that could be hunting that same herd. And then a lot tags based on that. Typically that's going to be anywhere from one to three tags per property that is eligible for those hunts. So you usually have to have maybe I'd say around 150 elk and uh-huh. then, um, and then they, I'd say they will usually start you off with one. And then if it seems like it's not, you know, it's a, it's positive for, for the herd, then they'll add more tags to that program. So are you seeing that the, the elk herds are healthy? They are. They're, yeah. they're doing really well. There's more elk, I think in the state than there ever has been. And, uh, and I know more and more landowners are wanting to put in for those permits just because I, I think the, the market for Thule elk is really driven by, uh, by collectors, especially for the, for the bulls, the cow elk, you know, uh, obviously easier to come by a cow elk tag. Everybody mm-hmm. wants a trophy bull. Um, but a lot of people, you know, with shooting the three elk species or it goes towards what, um, grand slam club Ovis calls the North America 29 or safari club international recognizes it as well is the 29 huntable species in North America. Then one of those is the Tulio. So it can be one of the harder ones to come by just because drawing the tag is so difficult. Uh, that a lot of those guys that are pursuing that uh, that collection, then I feel like really drive uh, drive the market for those elk hunts. So uh, if the state opens up more tags, that'd be great. It'd probably help, uh, as they control the the cost of the hunt a little bit better if there's more availability. Yeah. Um, but there are some huge elk on areas, even locally here in our area. Uh, that are in areas that just there aren't any hunts for currently. So if they do open those up, like I think Camp Roberts, they keep talking about opening a hunt up for Camp Roberts. And if they do that, there's I would the, the a s- extremely high likelihood that there is a world record Thule elk uh, is there? in Camp Roberts. So, <laughs> so do you ever get to go check them out on there? On uh, Yeah, you can see a lot of them. So Camp Roberts borders our property. We okay. border it on the, uh, I'd say on the kind of the, the east side or the northeast side. Um, and Camp Roberts is quite large. I think it's about 68,000 acres and it goes, it basically goes borders us and goes all the way to Paso. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of country, obviously you can't see in there, but, uh, but there are a lot of large bulls around that perimeter. So a couple of the ranches that have, uh, landowner tag programs on the perimeter have killed, um, world record, or I'd say bulls in the top 10 pretty consecutively the last five years, especially. Hey, right behind 
uh, them. If you like go towards the coast, isn't that like where Hearst Castle is? Yeah, right. so that's interesting too. On Hearst, they have uh, Roosevelt elk. Oh, okay. Do they do they come is, on, onto the your guys's land or come over that way? Uh, well, I I don't think we've ever seen any that we would know about. Yeah. But uh, but I would think there would be, and I think that's why it's always there's always kind of been a hold up on getting uh, uh, those landowner permits or uh, a hunting season set up, other than Fort Hunter Liggett, which borders, which used to be part of Hearst property, but borders Hearst on the backside. Um, which I think is limited. It's is why they've kind of limited those tags, just because um, I don't know. I don't you know, like they call those elk Roosevelt's at Hearst Ranch, and then over here they're Tule elk. So, and there's not, relatively speaking, in the terms of how an elk move, it's not that much distance between the two. So, are, are they are the Roosevelt elk bigger than the Tule elk? What's that? Are the Roosevelt elk bigger than the Tule elk? They are body size and antler size. They'll go in the book at around 295 inches. Tule elk will go in the book at 285 inches, but body size on a tule elk, I, I weigh a lot of our bulls uh, whole here because of how we hunt and the ranches we hunt. We can load the bulls uh, in the back of a side-by-side or the back of a pickup without gutting them uh-huh. and bring them straight back to the ranch to clean them. And so because of that, I, we weigh them at like around 500 to 550 quite often on a mature bull in mm-hmm. the earlier part of the rut before they really start to lose weight. And then those Roosevelt elk are going to be around, I'd say eight to 900 pounds. Wow. So did you hear about those, uh, you know, the elk down in the Tehachapi range, you know, up on the, uh, on the ranch out there, the, uh, what is that ranch out there? Um, the Tahone? Tahone ranch. Yeah. Yep. And those, uh, there was, there's three, you know, I live in Kernville and these three, uh, elk crossed the 58 freeway that goes to Tehachapi and then came all the way through the mountains and came all the way into Kernville, which is nuts. You know, we've never seen them in, in uh, Kernville. Did you hear about that? I did not. That's incredible though. I know they have a lot in Tehachapi and I've heard that they might start some hunting programs up there, but, uh, yeah, that's amazing that they. Yeah, they were. <laughs> it's kind of like the. Three of them. It's kind of like the wolf thing in California. Yeah, yeah that's what, amazing. What are you guys doing over here? They were in the golf course, kind of, kind of right by my house, and um, it was it was crazy to see them there. Um, and they're they're pretty good size, man. Those are the are those the Rocky Mountain ones? I'm not. I don't. Do you know what uh, if those guys are Rocky Mountain elk or are they Roosevelt elk as well? No, uh, they're Rocky Mountain elk. Rocky Mountain. You know what? What are they size wise compared to the Roosevelt? Uh, let's see, slightly slightly smaller on the body, but not by a lot. And then obviously quite a bit larger on the antlers. Like the ones at the home, they're shooting, you know, quite a few bulls that are scoring over the, you know, in the 400-inch range. So I'd say, you know, on average, you know, they're going to be about 60 inches larger than a than a normal uh, Rocky or, or I'm sorry, a normal Roosevelt or Tule elk. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting though. So let's talk about the pigs. Yeah, I'd say the the pigs are. Uh, I'd say funny, you know, that obviously the bread and butter of hunting in California, just because you can hunt them year round. So I think a lot of people, and I think obviously a lot of Californians know this, but out of state, uh, when we run into out of state hunters, I don't think they realize the sporting opportunities in California. And obviously, you guys with the with the fishing uh, aspect of it too. There's a ton of sporting in California, but then hunting. You can hunt big game year-round with pigs, and that's kind of the fun part with the pigs, you know, is that it offers the availability in the what people would consider the off-season from hunting the spring or the summer to get out, and uh, which is probably our, our heavy time for pig hunts, but, you know, to get out and go 
hunt or maybe get a little practice in before you you get that draw that elk tag in Colorado or you want to get out and shoot your gun or get together with buddies in in hunting camp when it's not your conventional fall hunting season. Uh huh. That those things are so interesting to me and they're they're so elusive aren't they i mean it just seems they like, definitely can be <laughs> yeah and it's um and you know uh i don't i don't know i've never hunted one but it sounds like it's just a blast you got to sneak up on them because they're super sketchy is that right yeah they, you know it's funny they what, what i tell the hunters you know, we're gonna see most of the activity with the pigs in the first half hour and the last half hour of daylight okay um so a lot of times not maybe not they're as sketchy just they're so nocturnal uh-huh. And, uh, and I just think that's just how they, uh, how they kind of move and live this time of year. They're going to be out kind of, I'd say, uh, all times of the day, just because of the weather. But since pigs don't sweat, you know, they have a hard time cooling themselves. So if there's any type uh-huh. of warm weather, they do not want to be out in it. So they're either mm-hmm. going to be, and that's why people say, you know, hunt the water for pigs or be around water or anywhere it's wet, moist, cool, mm-hmm. uh, is where pigs are going to be sleeping or laying. And so a lot of times and it'll be interesting too with um, with this new law in California that they're pulling, you know, that they're doing away with the pig tags. Really, I, I'm not sure how that how that's going to affect. Uh, I mean, I don't think it'll affect our business very much. It'll make it a little easier because then we can take uh, kids hunting that are under 12. Currently, you know, if you're not, if you have to be 12 years old to get a pig tag in the state of California. So okay. Um, but anyway, so the the law is supposed to supposed to change it the first of the year. Uh, it's already passed, so that they're gonna pull pigs off the game species list. And and, and is that seems kind of interesting because aren't those don't those pigs like do a lot of damage and they they multiply? They do, and, and that and that's why they're pulling them off. Is that uh. I think uh, so? I think it was mostly kind of geared towards, and, and I could be wrong staying, <laughs> saying saying this on the media platform, but I think I'm correct. Uh-huh. Is that it was kind of geared towards you know trying to help people in the ag community. And I think a lot of uh, people maybe in like the Sonoma County area that mm-hmm. has have an issue with pigs. So currently if you have an issue with pigs on your property uh, and you have ag or, or anything, we also, we do some wildlife mitigation work as well with landowners. Uh, if you have a problem, you, uh, you fill out a report with the Department of Fish and Wildlife. They give you back a permit. You can put up to three people on that permit and you can then uh, shoot and like with our permits, mostly we're they they'll give you up to like 99 pigs on that permit that uh, okay. one of three people can shoot and you need to state if you're going to do that trapping or night hunting or with dogs, um, and then you can go out and you know effectively depredate or try to eradicate the pigs that are causing that damage. So I think in lieu of trying of in in lieu of those permits, now they're gonna you're not gonna have to basically not gonna have to put in for those permits anymore. You can uh, just okay. go out. And shoot the pigs like like people hunt coyotes. Oh, interesting. Okay. That, so there won't be any laws about, uh, and I would think since they're non-game species, there won't be any laws, I would assume, with wanton waste. So if people wanted to, sh- to shoot the pigs and not uh, recover the meat, which which I think would be, uh, you know, <laughs> I would yeah. say a problem. It would de- definitely be a mistake on, on their side just because the wild, wild pork tastes fantastic. Does so. it? Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff is, it is great. Now, some of the older animals can be a little tougher, have some odor to them, but I think that's true with, with any species. So, Uh um, but it'll be interesting to see how, how that law affects the pig population in the state. I think it definitely will affect the public land hunting areas, but obviously with the private land, uh, ranches, the private ranches that we lease, um, mostly outfitters in the state, you know, take care of the herds of pigs on their properties just because they are a 
a big revenue source uh, for the landowner, for the outfitter. And, uh, and the hunters like to have a successful hunt. So when they show up to the ranch, you want to go out and see 30, 40 pigs. You don't want to be, you know, looking around under every bush, just trying to find one skinny one. Yeah. I mean, I, those pigs, weren't they like, uh, uh, put here from Russia or something I read or what, what's their, yeah, so what's they, their they were originally brought into Monterey County was, was where they were first brought into. They were brought into Carmel okay. and, uh, and that's where they originated. A, a landowner brought them in there and brought in, uh, you know, like a, a, I would say a, a pure strain of what we call a European wild boar, or Russian boar. A lot of people refer to them as. Okay. And then Hearst, Hearst brought them in as well. So the first place they were, they kind of started in Carmel, and obviously, you know, geographically, the Hearst Ranch sits just south of Carmel, on Highway One. Mm. You know, be, south between San Francisco and San Luis Obispo. So. So they kind of got started in the Los Padres National Forest on that ridge, which would just be probably 20 miles to 30 miles uh, west of where we're located currently. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they got started. And then and guys would hunt them then, but typically they'd take dogs up there and they'd hunt them with dogs up in the forest. And then around the 60s and 70s is when pigs started showing up uh, in a lot of in a lot of the ag ground. So in the 60s and 70s, dryland grain farming was uh, a really big business before all the trade tariffs uh, came into effect. So most of the landowners in this area would plant dryland barley. So with that, it gave the pigs a great food source. So we're still, we're kind of in a real arid open area that you would not think pigs would like, but I think because of the barley uh, fields that we currently have and still have and have had, you know, for in this area since probably the twenties or thirties that those, uh, those pigs do real well on them. And I think that's the biggest factor why we have a big population of pigs in our area. But obviously they've done well across the state. There's a ton of pigs on the, on the North coast. There's a ton of pigs in red bluff. Uh, Tohon ranch has a lot of pigs. So they, uh, they don't, they don't seem to need a whole lot, a whole lot to do well. So. Wow. I mean, they, they just seem to do well, huh? They just, uh, they're just all over the place and they're, they're even. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're, they're super prolific. You know, they can have up to three, litters of pigs you know in a in a year generally they're going to have two they're going to have a litter in the spring and they're going to have a litter in the fall and that's the fall litter only if they if the feed's decent and and they uh, you know they're getting fed on a hard drought year you'll see them have you know maybe one litter then kind of make it through the winter then have another litter that next following spring do they um like if you're trying to if you get pretty close to one will one turn on you and come after you because i've seen that on youtube and stuff is that is that uh, they can they, yeah the, the the boars definitely can at times the sows will if they feel like the like their piglets are threatened if they're a wet sow with what we call what we refer to as a wet sow is a sow that's nursing okay um if they have babies that are nursing and you walk up on them or surprise them then sometimes the sow can be aggressive but mostly then with the sow it would be like a mock charge like they just kind of come over towards you and kind of woof at you. Then if their babies run back and they trot off, but uh-huh. most of the time, like with anything, like with, you know, when, when you're on, when you're hiking in the, in the Sierras and you see a black bear and the bear sees you and you see the bear and the bear kind of trots off that 99% of the time, what happens, I think in, like I said, I, I started guiding pig hunters in probably in 2000, 2001. Uh-huh. And, uh, what most, and I, I've only seen a few charge that weren't, already crippled what happens a lot of times is is you've hit one and you're trying to find it in the brush and then uh, it's hiding from you you surprise it 
you know, you get that fight or flight response and then it kind of comes at you. <laughs> okay. Um, so that, that's 90% of the time when a pig is going to come at you. Now, a few times I've ever seen where I think a boar doesn't recognize you as being a person and they just see something because they have terrible eyesight. What they have is a sense of smell that's unbelievable, but oh, okay. uh, they can't, they can hardly see. You can do an open stock on a pig at a hundred to 200 yards. And if you're not flailing your arms around, you can almost sneak right up to them. Oh, uh, if you're, if, if the wind is right, but it's nothing like a deer, a deer will see you from a mile away and just be pinned on to you if you're not sneaking real well, you know, but <laughs> pigs are the exact opposite. If they're eating, you can almost just walk straight to them. Well, um, but it's uh, but a few will, I think if they don't, the times I've noticed it is when, uh, and looking back at it, the, the, it's usually with a big mature boar that usually doesn't, you know, he's kind of the king of the <laughs> king of the castle. Like no one really messes with them. I don't think mountain lions or bears really, um, harass them a whole lot. I've seen coyotes harass them, I think purely for fun, uh-huh. uh, but they don't, there's no chance that they'd be able to take one. So, but, uh, uh, a lot of times you'll be walking and you'll kind of maybe surprise one. It kind of sees you or senses you, and it kind of maybe charge a little, then it turns around and runs off. But I've never seen one. I've never had one personally without being provoked by me or by a, by a dog come at us. So Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How many times have you uh, seen a mountain lion on your property? You know, it's funny. You used to never see them uh-huh. uh, in the, you know, I started hunting. I think, you know, I, I started hunting like in 94 and never saw them. And then probably saw the first one in maybe 03 or 04. Then it went probably five or six years. And then the last, I'd say five years, I've seen one to two a year. Okay. Wow, and so I think it's it's amazing the difference, and I don't know, and obviously that there's a lot of reasons why that is with with wildlife. Obviously, everything in nature falls like what they call like a you know an S curve, you know. So when one goes up, the other goes down, and it, and it, everything kind of has a even flow to it, or you hope it does. You know, nature has a great way of of uh, working itself out and kind of keeping track. So if the deer herd goes up, then the maybe the lions come up a little bit, and the deer go back down, and it all kind of there's a flow to everything in nature, obviously, but 
So I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting. Obviously, that's the big concern. I think across the West is the mountain lion conversation, mm-hmm. and uh, and that no one does anything about it. Now, even in the state of California, you used to be able if they uh, if a mountain lion killed a killed livestock, you could get a permit, and then the state trapper would come out. He mm-hmm. would trap it or hunt it with dogs and and kill it. Uh, now that's uh, they've even made that illegal. So even if they do kill your livestock. Um, they try to, the Department of Fish and Wildlife tries to give you uh, tips to deter the mountain lions. Um, but most of the time, I think, and all the lions that I've encountered in the last few years have been very, uh, very docile. <laughs> so they? they don't, they don't run away. Yeah. They just stand there and look at you. Or in a couple instances, we've had spotters on ridges when we're elk hunting, we'll use a lot of spotters and uh, we've had the spotters stalked by lions and and things uh, like that. And so you hear those stories more and more. And I think it's just because, uh, or even like a couple of the older guys that work for me, they say it's a, a new breed of mountain lion that has never been hunted. <laughs> so they don't, yeah. there's no fear, you know, to them. They don't, no one, no one hunts them, no one pursues them. So, uh, and I think that's probably why you see a few more of them. So from your, from your expertise, do you think that, of course, there's, there sounds like there's too many and I mean, didn't they used to be able to hunt for hunt them? And and it was yeah. So until the seven yeah yeah. So until the seventies, in the seventies, they put a moratorium on them, and uh-huh. then so you you couldn't hunt them after that. But you used to be able to hunt them. They used to have a bounty on them in California, like they did in most states, and uh, and they definitely tried to I'd say um, mitigate them, uh, uh-huh. manage them. Um, obviously, you don't want to er- eradicate any species. That they definitely. You know, bears, lions, coyotes—they're they're all needed in uh, in nature. But um, what I try to explain to people is when when we're wanting to be the predator as well, then that's where the problem comes in. Now, if if we weren't the predator, and I think that's where anti-hunters would like—is <laughs> uh-huh. for humans not to be the predator, and then for the lions and the bears to kind of eat what they want and take what they want, and and let the, let nature figure it out. But when you bring humans in there, and and we want to hunt, uh, you know, for for meat or for for, for sport. Then obviously um, we got to manage the predators as well. So, um, and it's just it's tough in this in this state. It's very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they don't give uh, wildlife managers many tools anymore to uh, to do that effectively. When you're in Mexico, do you see lions down there? Uh, you do. Yep. So yeah. they they have quite a few mountain lions in Mexico as well. And you guys are what are you guys hunting down there? Uh, mule deer. Okay. Uh, coos deer and then there are on the one ranch we have they uh, it's interesting there's a uh, in mexico anymore there's a pretty large business for uh what they call a state raised or high fenced wild sheep um and so on the ranch that we do hunt they do have a uh, an area that they have a controlled herd in that they breed for hunting uh oh. sheep on that ranch and it's not not a huge area and those hunts aren't that expensive. Obviously, there's places to hunt elk in Mexico that are uh, free range for sheep, quite a few of them. And then those hunts are more expensive. So I think uh, it gives hunters that maybe can't afford a, a $60,000, $80,000 sheep hunt. Here you can buy a $25,000 sheep hunt and, uh, and still get a desert bighorn ram. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, uh, in the hunting world especially, there's always a lot of controversy between you know, high fence hunting or the free range hunting. Um, but mostly why we're down there for, uh, on the leases that we have is, uh, for the coos deer uh, there, we do get a few mule deer permits and we have shot some, some really big mule deer down there in the last few years. Uh, but we might only get a handful of mule deer permits in the region that we hunt. We hunt in Northern Sonora. So just South of 
the Arizona border by maybe an hour, hour and a half. Okay. Um, so we're not we're not in what's considered the the normal mule deer area. Where mule deer predominantly in Mexico are getting hunted is down around Hermosillo, and it's in the big flat uh, kind of plains between the mountains and that Hermosillo Valley. Um, where we're hunting is just south of Arizona, so we're typical to that country around Tucson or Bisbee. Um, where you get into the mountains, and then that's where you find the coos deer, and those are a blast to hunt. They're they're so similar to the blacktail that for us it's a, it's an easy carryover, and it's a, it, it's kind of like a switched passion. So we we have a huge passion for hunting our local deer, our local blacktail. But then you go down there, and you're hunting a very similar size deer antler wise. You know, it's uh, smaller on average, but uh, than a blacktail deer, but very similar. And then the style of hunting is great. There's uh, you know, you can't, you can hardly replicate it just because you, here you got all these private ranches that are available and then you get private tags for them that are good from, uh, the end of November until the end of January where you can hunt them uh, in the rut while they're breeding. And so the likelihood of shooting a trophy is really high. And then just the amount of deer you see is huge, um, because of the game and those on those private ranches. Do you guys have on your ranch, do you guys have like ponds? Um, the, the animals will come to and, or, um, do you have like, is there like a water source? Is there a stream going through in that area? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of springs on the ranches here locally. Oh, yeah. And then there's a lot of, because of the, uh, cattle ranching on these ranches, there's a lot of, uh, I say there are some stock ponds, but then there will be uh, water troughs. So, uh, there'll be a well in the Valley on the ranch and then they'll pump it up to a water tank. And then from that tank, then it'll gravity feed like a spider web down to all these troughs that are in different uh, areas or fields on the ranch. And so um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of water uh, for wild game on the property. Any bass ponds? Uh, A few, a a couple of them. We've had, we've had some ranchers, some great bass ponds on them in the past. Uh, And then we have, we're actually uh, building a, we're going to, building a bass pond here at the lodge awesome. right now. Really? Yeah. So cool. it'd be fun. Uh, everyone loves fishing. So it's Absolutely. always nice to have to be able to fish, you know, you can fish any time of the day. Yeah. So it's nice to go, you know, come in from a hunt and go out there and how hang big, out and relax and how throw big, your line how in. How big are you guys making it? Uh, pretty good size. Uh, probably end up being, I'd say about, um, not huge, but, uh, yeah. you know, probably, you know, maybe 150 feet across. Oh, cool. So, you know, awesome. decent, you know, we, we don't, yeah. we don't have, I'm not building a lake, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Bitching, but, man, that's going to be fun. Yeah. That'll be oh, really for cool. sure. So where, what were you hunting on Santa Rosa Island? So out there they were hunting mule deer and Roosevelt elk. So those oh. were brought out to that Island and, uh, the elk were brought in 1900, 1901. And then the deer were brought out in the late 1920s. Wow. And so would you camp then, out there for like a week and do little outfitter well, camps? Yeah, it was interesting. They had, there was an old ranch out there. And then, so we stayed, the hunter stayed in the ranch house. The guides all stayed in the, in the bunkhouse. And that program was run by a company called multiple use managers out of Los Molinos, California, Wayne and Gordon Long. A lot of people in California know them just as they were, a, a and still are a big staple in the hunting community, especially uh, in the eighties and nineties. Uh, they had a lot of programs going. They had Dye Creek Preserve in Northern California that was super popular and a great place to hunt. And they did an, uh, an amazing job managing that and managing the island as well. Uh, and then that island, it was interesting, was uh, turned into a national park. And then when mm-hmm. they 
when it was turned into a national park, then uh, the family that had previously owned the island uh, was, I'd say, you know, typical of, of that situation, forced to sell, and but they were able to retain a lease on the island, and that lease came up in 2011. So as of 2011, then all those deer and elk were um, were eradicated by the federal government. A lot of people like to blame, uh, uh, you know, our, uh, our our California politicians, you know, uh, Boxer and Feinstein, but uh-huh. it, it wasn't. They, they definitely probably didn't help. But uh, but it was the federal government because it was the National Park Service Department of the Interior uh, is who um, you know pushed through that eradication of those deer and elk. But it was an amazing program. Uh, you know, we had a couple years out there. We would take 50 trophy bucks, and out of 50 trophy bucks, we'd uh, 40 of those would be over 200 inches. Talk about so, going back in time, man. I mean, being out there, there's like no one out there, right? I mean, no, it was it was it was definitely interesting. It was its own little world. Uh, you know, there's no uh, we'd be out there for three months at a time for that hunting season from August until November, and uh, and yeah, you know, there's no obviously the when and when we were out there in those early 2000s um and multi-use managers they were out there from the 70s i started working out there in the early 2000s until 2011 but when you're out there you know cell phones uh we get you know some service with um you know at that time nextel phones on an analog service uh-huh. um, or we had like one of the old bat like the old bag motorola phones uh-huh. in the foreman's house and we were able to you know call call in if you get bad weather then like if it got super windy seemed like or a storm like you couldn't the cell phones would hardly call <laughs> call call to the mainland and then satellite phones were, were an option then as well but then satellite phones i'm sure they still are but even then were expensive to use so rarely would anybody ever use a sat phone to ever call home or talk to their wife or girlfriend what so. a cool experience man i mean just to be out there did you did you ever do any fishing it was yeah the fishing was phenomenal so i think I uh I've gone back with my kids now. I have a, I have an 11 year old daughter and a 10 year old daughter, and we go back with my kids now and go camp out there. And I I have zero interest in hiking around. I spent a lot of years hiking out there, so it's hard for me to see it without the game on it. Uh-huh. But uh, the the whole time we're there, we dive for lobsters, uh, spearfish, and then just do conventional you know fishing off the rocks for cabazon and uh, and grass bass, greenlings, lingcod. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a great Sounds spot amazing. to fish just because it's, uh, it is so secluded out there and the fishing, you know, you can't just because of the amount of people that go out there, you just can't overfish it. There's so few visitors, you know, they do run a boat out of, uh, oh, uh, out of Ventura, out of uh, Channel Islands Harbor. Yeah. They run, they, uh, run a boat out there that'll, uh, it drops people off for day hikes and then they'll also drop them off. Like we stay out there for three or four nights and they have a nice campground that's right next to the beach. And then, like you say, most of the people there, what I noticed when we were there, most people want to go hike the Island. And then, so it's uh, you know, like a private beach to yourself for, for a week. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So it's yeah. Like, so it, for, a, for a fishing experience, it's, it's a lot of fun. And for a lobster dive or spear fishing, it's a, it's a blast. Do you have to get a special permit to fish there? Or is there something? Uh, you don't, you just, you just need ocean enhancement stamp on yeah. your, uh, on your uh, on your fishing license and can you just fish anywhere around on it is there a certain area uh, you are... can there, there there is one area um out towards the call carrington point that is shut off to fishing but right where the mm-hmm. campground is uh is open to fishing and there's some pretty good rock shelves right there it is it is pretty sandy so there is some chance for halibut right there as well oh, um cool but because it's on i'd say it's on the it's in a real sandy bay called betcher's bay um 
it's not it's not really great for for rockfish like it is maybe in some parts um, or it's not quite like um, like I've seen around Catalina Island but mm -hmm. it, and because you're on a northern island the water's a little colder a little rougher than it is at Catalina mm -hmm. for people that like to spear to spear fish and dive it's obviously Catalina is a little a little more conducive but um, yeah. but yeah it is great we used to on our days off between the hunts uh, all the guys we would always go fishing. <laughs> oh, I bet, man. So That's we were fun. we would kind of get I'd say get burnt out at looking at deer and elk, but we'd always we'd always like to go fish as well. And so most of that was with uh, um, a lot of guys use uh, we'd use throw lines. If you're familiar with use, with no what, with what's those throw are line? how people use those off the rocks. Oh yeah yeah um, okay yeah sure. but yeah just 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 a heavy weight with a hook on it and uh -huh. uh, old school and, right and, there and, man <laughs> yeah and more it, it's like like masonry line you uh -huh. know you'd use or a heavier string, and then you throw it out and then let it sit. And then usually because the rocks are so rough, you know, when you're fishing right there, and you catch a lot of cabazon and lean cod that way. Uh -huh. And then we would catch some sheep's head off the backside of the island and stuff like that. But, oh, fun. Yeah. I love it, man. All right, so let's go back to your ranch and talk about birds. Yeah, so, yeah, this definitely this time of year we're in uh, we're in upland season right now. Next, it's funny, on uh, tomorrow opens the bantail pigeon season, which most people don't really – they see bantail pigeon in the Department of Fish and Wildlife hunting regulations. Most people don't think much about them uh, because the limit is only two birds, but they're a lot of fun to shoot. And so we will get – because I don't, I don't think there's any other outfitters that really promote it or push it, but we will get people that – uh, species collectors, bird collectors that will come and hunt and, uh, you know, pay for a three day hunt and we'll go shoot uh, band tailed pigeons with them just so they can have a few for their, for their bird collection. Okay. Uh, so we'll do that. That's this next week. It's a nine day season. Uh, obviously quail, we'll do uh, a few quail hunts. Quail are one of those uh, species that are uh, kind of like deer where, uh, you know, they're, they're really dependent on rainfall each year and you don't want to overhunt them, mm -hmm. but we'll see coveys from anywhere from a hundred to, you know, a hundred to 75 birds, uh, in a covey. And then we take a few out of each covey, then move on to the next, the, the next covey on the ranch and hunt them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but that's a lot of fun. We don't use dogs like, um, I'd say conventional, mm -hmm. conventional quail hunters out of, uh, out of Texas or Georgia would use or the, in the South where they're hunting Bob White's. Um, it seems like our birds, because of the hills we're in, they run a lot more. The bird, the dogs are super helpful for finding a downed bird, mm -hmm. but uh, we've noticed that the birds uh, will run a little bit more with a dog. Now, we've had other hunters that come from Texas, and they tell us that, well, if we had good dogs, it would probably do better. And, I, and I'm sure there's some truth to that. It's just that quail hunting in our area isn't, uh, isn't as popular, probably, uh, as it is in the south. So there's not as many, probably the quality of dogs isn't that good? You know, I'll probably take a lot of flack for saying that from the dog handlers, but <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you, do you have any, do but you there have probably any? are some good dogs out there. We just sure. personally, we don't have them. And I don't know of any other guides in our area that have them. So do you, do you have dogs I, on the ranch? Uh, we do. We do have, we have Jack Russell Terriers that we use to track crippled, uh, crippled game. No way. Really? Yeah. So, so they're that's a lot cool. of fun. So that's, it's similar to what you see like in Africa. They use them a lot too, uh -huh. but for pig hunting, I'd say, man, probably one in five pigs uh we have to actively look for oh, okay and they off. look for like get dogs and track and it takes some time and then even with that there's a probability that we're not going to find it those dogs um, depending those dogs on how are, it was hit those dogs are in heaven i bet man no they, they love it they oh uh, obviously God. they're not as effective as maybe a hound would be uh -huh. uh, but the one benefit uh, of them over a hound is that uh, a hound will just keep hunting and 
they'll be gone. <laughs> but a terrier, at least, they, they, you know, not very, they're not a very big dog, so they want to fight. So they'll go run around, and they don't – they'll make a pretty big loop from, from whoever's handling them, uh-huh. but they'll always generally come back uh-huh. uh, just because they uh, – an animal that's not wounded can outrun them very easily. And I think that's their biggest benefit is that an animal that is wounded is going to stay and fight, especially a pig. And then that dog will fight it until we get there to shoot it. Oh, um, and then a pig that's that's not crippled or not definitely not hit hard enough to fight is going to outrun the the dog, and then the dog comes back, and then then there's no issue. We know there's not. We know the animal probably is going to live if it was hit, or if it wasn't hit at all, then we know okay he didn't hit it, or the hunter didn't hit it. The pig got away. We'll regroup and let's keep hunting. <laughs> that's, I had a a Jack Russell. His name was Scooter, and he hated every, every other animal except for humans. And <laughs> he was so mean to other dogs and they're just, they, I don't think they realize how big they are and they just want to scrap, huh? They just are just like, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why they, yeah, they don't, they do not mind a 300 pound uh, <laughs> pig that's been, uh, that's been wounded. They, they definitely don't mind fighting. Them. So, yeah. and then, and then we, we breed those dogs as well. So, oh, you do. um, Yep, and then it's fun, just fun to have them. Uh, then we always kind of keep ourselves in dogs, and then I would say a sideline business is then we sell Jack Russell Terriers. Also. Oh no way, that's cool. That's yeah. good to know. So what? Yeah, if, what, so what about your uh, the turkeys? And I see they're yeah. they're they're Rio Grande turkeys. So what does that mean? Are they from that area? From well, the, so there's four spe- four species of turkeys uh-huh. in the U.S. There's uh, Rio Grandes, Miriams, Easterns, and Osceolas. There's also a Gould's turkey that you'll find down in Mexico, in, in northern Mexico. Then there's uh, oscillated turkey that you find down in the Yucatan Peninsula okay. in, um, in I'd say, South America, Central America. Okay. Um, but the Rio Grandes, kind of um, in the southwest, all the turkeys in California were uh, planted here. None of the turkeys in California are native. And so um, certain areas of California, uh, Tejon Ranch being one of them, has Miriam turkeys. There are some Miriam turkeys in Northern California as well. Our turkeys are, most of the turkeys in California are going to be Rio Grande's. Okay. Um, we do more turkey hunts, I think, or at least we have for the last 10 years, probably more turkey hunts than any other outfitter in the state. Uh, we just have access to a lot of really great uh, private ranches. And I think our proximity from uh, those big city centers, Southern California, the Bay Area, we get a lot of hunters that, that come in because it's an easy, you know, half day, you know, three, four hour drive to get here to go for a weekend hunt. So we'll generally do anywhere from 50 to 80, um, turkey hunts in a year. Uh, the spring season is definitely the better of the two. We get a lot of hunters that want to hunt the fall season. Uh, just, I think because of the, I say maybe the nostalgia of, of getting a, a turkey in the fall for, for Thanksgiving, um, but the hunt is definitely because the birds aren't breeding. The, de- the hunt is not that exciting. So on a fall, on a spring Turkey hunt, uh, the guides are very into it. I'm really into it. We use conventional calling methods, decoys, and, uh, we want to get the gobblers fired up and we want them to come in to the decoys. We want them to come to us. And so, uh, it's fun to try to trick anytime you're, you're calling an animal, calling an elk, calling a coyote. It's fun to be in that position where you're, I'd say, tricking the animal into coming towards you to shoot them, and uh, and I and it just it, it's a blast, you know, because you're are they're hiding from them. They have great eyesight, and there's just a million things that make it a nice hunt. Uh, the time of year it's the spring on the coast, so the weather's nice. Um, 
and you know generally we're not going to get rain that time of year over here you know maybe a few sprinkles through april but not many so i bet it's so cool like you probably wear uh camouflage stuff in the bushes and then you guys call them in and then i bet it's a rush when it when they finally come through the bushes and one comes in (laughs) yeah because sometimes you'll be waiting there for five minutes sometimes you'll be waiting there for two hours (laughs) oh really because you well, because yeah. you, you can kind of hear them. You'll call yeah. and they'll respond. You'll oh, call and they'll respond. And then either they come right to you or they don't. If they don't come to you, that means they probably have a female they're already hanging out with. And so you just kind of wait it out. And then so once he's done breeding them and they'll breed those hens. So in order for a hen to build her clutch of eggs, she has to get bred every day. So she'll get bred first thing in the morning and he'll go through and he'll breed every hen that he was roosted with, whatever, whatever the dominant Tom was. Mm-hmm. And then those hens, once they get bred, they walk off and they'll walk to their nest. And once they build their clutch, then that hen won't go back up in the tree until those baby chicks are hatched and they can fly up in the tree. Otherwise she'll live on the ground with them from the moment she starts to set on her nest. What a um, So as the season progresses, there's fewer and fewer turkeys that come off the roost in the morning. And then so the idea is later in the season can be a little better, a little easier to call. But then also late in the season, you're getting, you're hunting these birds that have already been hunted for two to three weeks, you know, so they could have already been called in and missed or they could have been called in and somebody moves and spooks them and they, they learn really quick. Um, you get birds and they, a lot of turkey guys like to use the term skunked. Uh-huh. Uh, you skunked the birds up, you, you know, you, they, you educated them. And so that happens a lot of times, <laughs> two or three toms will come in together. You'll shoot one cause you're not only allowed to shoot one per day, three per season in the spring season, shoot one goes down and the other toms kind of, you know, they, they kind of learned a little bit right there. You know, they learned that if they came into that sound, that whatever call you were using, then that's going to kill them. Um, or they see the decoy. And so they, it's interesting to see the birds that get maybe overpressured on some properties. And we've learned over the years how to kind of avoid those certain situations and the guides have too, but we'll hunt. Uh, when I was younger, I'd hunt a little bit more aggressively and I learned a lot that <laughs> that's not always, the, that's not always good to do. So, so do you guys do uh, uh, bow hunts too? We do. Yeah, we do archery and, okay. and, you know, shotgun or rifle. Obviously we're hunting big game, but uh, quite a bit, I would say when it comes to, you know, Pig hunts, 100% on rifle hunts, yeah, uh, or 99%. You know, a guy, if he doesn't kill one, he's going to shoot at a lot of them. And then with an archery hunt, uh, I'd say 100% shot opportunity. The guys that bring a bow are going to shoot their bow at a pig, but uh, 30% of those individuals are not going to take a pig home. Yeah. And that's just because archery hunting, Everybody that anybody who's ever picked up a bow and tried to archery hunt realizes all the little things that, come into effect once you're trying to shoot at an animal you know so right and and, and that can be a challenge and the turkeys it's it's a little better because we're in a blind and we're calling them in so you can miss a turkey three or four times and the turkey will still kind of be so fixated on the decoy that he might just be hanging out and you can kind of collect your <laughs> your nerves uh-huh Hopefully you got one more arrow left, put that arrow in and maybe make that last one count. So you guys must be so stoked when uh, your client gets what they came for. And is that, is that true? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's fun to see, uh, see, I mean, you see the progression in the hunt too, especially with the archery hunters. Uh, they can obviously, archery hunters can pick up a rifle, you know, for hunting big game or a shotgun to finish their hunt if, if they'd like to, but, and some guys will see like the hunt the first day and they'll say, well, 
it was tough. You know, they, they made some mistakes and mm-hmm. didn't get the animal or it was just tough with their animals out of range. They're like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to take the shotgun tomorrow. And uh, if we can, I just try to talk them into, you know, Hey, this, you, you came here because you're looking to accomplish this goal with your bow. Let's just stay after that. I think we can do it. And so you will. And you kind of like the one guy said, he's like, man, he, he's like, he wants to be, he wanted to bring his sons back. He's like, cause they need to learn that too. Like you need to learn, like, if you just are a little bit more uh, persistent and you don't give up and you're patient with the process, um, they, it'll all come together. It's just, it's just going to be a little bit more hard work. Yeah. So it is, is nice to see that payoff and it's nice to see that click, especially with people that don't, and like I explained to the guides, some of the guides, you know, they, they grew up in this area. They've been fortunate to have, you know, great private hunting at their fingertips their whole life. And uh, so they don't understand that, guys coming maybe from out of the area or the hunters coming from that area, you know, this is their one, one time a year they get to do this. So they're going to make mistakes. They're going to have nerves. And so it's, it's nice to be able to work them through that and see them accomplish, you know, their goal of trying to, you know, successfully harvest, uh, some animals. What's a, a wild Turkey taste like? Uh, it's about it's just like domestic Turkey, other than, uh, the only, the main difference is obviously how fast it'll cook. So oh, I think wow. a lot of people make the mistake of overcooking them. And I think that's the, the biggest oh, mistake. Uh-huh. Uh, what works really well, a lot of people do because the legs are so lean compared to a foster farms bird that only has to walk about three feet in its life. Um, <laughs> a wild turkey will walk, you know, like, you know, probably three miles, four miles a day. Uh-huh. Um, once it comes off the roost, it never stops walking until it goes back to sleep in the evening. Um, so they're obviously going to be a little drier. So a lot of people will cut that leg or thigh apart from the main breast oh, and then okay. cook it separately or yeah. maybe slow cook it and then cook that breast to then, you know, cook it conventionally or, um, you know, or breast, you know, cut the breast meat off the bone and then fry it, you know, or barbecue it. So it sounds like when you guys are, uh, or when the, when hunters come into your lodge, they get some pretty awesome food. Is that right? They do, yeah. We have uh, a couple uh, cooks that cook for us uh, between the hunts. It's just hard to get one full-time, but we have uh, a couple really good, and then the one guy that does 90% of them does an amazing job. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's neat because we have the butcher shop. We're able to um, kind of let them taste the different sausages that our butchers make, and so that's a lot of fun, too, to taste those different varieties and kind of you know educate them a little bit about all the different things they can do uh, with their meat. Um, I mean, it must, it must be amazing. You go there, you, you hunt and then you come back and, and have a really nice meal and just relax at the, at the lodge is what I'm picturing. Yep. Yeah. It makes it nice. Definitely. It's funny when we, when we started, we started like a lot of there's, and like I said, there's quite a few outfitters in the state of California and a lot of them and myself included, when I started, we did not have a lodge. We did not have that opportunity. And so we would, uh, you know, pick guys up at Denny's, hunt, yeah. <laughs> skin yeah. their pig on a tree, put it in their ice chest, <laughs> shake their hand. They would uh-huh. head back to, uh, you know, wherever, to, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ramona or wherever they came from. And then, uh, we, and we'd go home mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's a little bit lost in that. I feel like, uh, anymore, uh, I really enjoy probably more than the hunt. I enjoy the camaraderie around the campfire. Mm-hmm. I enjoy those conversations. Mm-hmm. I enjoy connecting with the, the customers. I like, it's fun to get the big group and it's nice to see, friends come together or a lot of times we, we love seeing those business groups, business relationships, uh, mm-hmm. corporate groups, company hunts come together and, uh, and kind of click in, uh, in this atmosphere 
that uh, that does come with you know early mornings, late evenings, uh, adrenaline, uh, the ups and downs of hunts of, mm-hmm. of you know where the game is. Now we found it. Now we killed it. Then what we're doing with it, mm-hmm. and uh, to come around around a nice meal and have some cocktails and mm-hmm. a campfire and uh, and just enjoy socializing with people on a on a one to one level. Life is good, man. That's, that <laughs> in that hard. instance, I think it, it really is yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So people want to find you, where, where do they go? Uh, Oakstoneoutfitters.com is our website. And we have a pretty comprehensive website with all the, we, we try to answer all the questions that, uh, that most people I think have, have given us over the years on the website. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we have a, uh, a full-time office manager, Sarah in our office is great. And then, uh, cause a lot of times I'm in the field or the guides are in the field, but she can always connect, uh, connect the customers to us for those, uh, direct questions before a hunt or to get those last minute details if they want to come hunt. And then she also helps assist customers in the taxidermy and the, the meat processing side of the office side of the business. So are you doing any shows this year? Uh, you know, uh, we, we always have done the safari club show, but now this year it's going to be in Nashville. So we might go just as spectator, but not as an exhibitor. Um, we might do, uh, we might, we talked about doing some other shows here in California, but, uh, in the past we've done the ISE show in Sacramento, the sportsman show, and we've done the Fred Hall show in, um, Long Beach down in Long Beach. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But, but this year we, we are not currently signed up to go to either of those shows. We've done it. Like I say, we've done them in the past in a, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, definitely a lot of pluses to them, but then a lot of times it's the, the time commitment can be tough as right. well to get to those shows. Oh yeah, man. It's a, it's a week long, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing, uh, the, the, it's called Bart Hall show. Now I'm doing, uh, San Diego and, um, and the long beach one, but you know what, uh, what you, one you might consider too, is the central Valley sports show in Bakersfield, man. It's kind of in, it's a, it's a great show as well. I don't know if you've done that one yet. I have not. I've, I've, I've talked to them on the phone quite a bit that they, they do a real good well of reaching out and, yeah. uh, and trying to pull in more exhibitors, which I think is obviously important to get people in the door. And, and you like that show yourself then? Yeah, man. There's a lot of, lot of hunters in Bakersfield big, yeah. big time. And, uh, I've been kind of introduced to that community, um, over the years and, uh, people go all over the place, man. But I think that would be a great show for you to, to check out for sure. Yeah. Well, we got to get you out here in the spring, uh, yeah. to do some turkey hunting, or if you want to do a pig hunt, um, um, for sure, you know, anytime really, but, and I'll have to get you, uh, up and, uh, fishing up on the current. I'm a little, you know, honestly, I, I'm a little concerned about, uh, about, uh, fly fishing, uh, <laughs> just be, just because of the addiction, uh, that, that yeah. most of my customers that fly fish have uh, yeah. a lot of them. I've known them since they were, they, they weren't fishermen. And then a lot of them, one guy came up, he comes up to me every year. He's like, I'm like, well, what'd you do this year? He's like, I, you know, I started fly fishing. I'm like, how is it? He's like, I've been, he's like, I've gone on nine trips this year. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, it's, he's like, yeah. he's like, if you pick up a fly rod, he said, you will instantly become addicted. Yep. So, you know, I, I tried it a little bit. I lived in Colorado for a time out of college and I had a friend there and went out and did it a few times. I was, uh, I, I kind of learned the nuts and bolts of it. I was uh-huh. not successful. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that mostly because, uh, you know, just, you know, it's fishing <laughs> number one. And then, yeah. uh, and then just the frustration of learning how to properly, uh, properly cast fly and everything else that goes along with, with being successful. Fly well, fishing. I think, uh, I think I, I hear a, a trade coming up here right now. 
You know? No, for sure. I think so. <laughs> Be fun. Well, Chad, thank you so much for being on the podcast and I learned a lot and your uh, outfitters um, sounds amazing. Um, Oakstone Outfitters look, sounds amazing and uh, looking forward to coming and checking out your place and, and hanging out and I'd love to have you up on the current and, and uh, going fishing and check out my area too. Oh, awesome guy. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, man. Well, we'll, we'll talk soon, man. All right. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.